Hey folks and welcome, 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 welcome. My name is Mike and in this old podcast we have, and and I guess by, by we I mean me, but we have before us stories of betrayal. Mother heckin' betrayal by those closest to us, I'll be damned, nothing worse, nope, nothing. Well, I mean, let's not say things we can't take back. One story is about betrayal by a family, the other, I mean, uh, may as well be. Also, uh, everyone listening, I just want to say a quick thank you, a, a quick but large <laughs> mic special. Uh, thank you so much for all the love and support the podcast has gotten. But how's about, you know, here, listen, let's just stick with the here and now and the stories I have for you today. Let's cut the waffle and get straight to it. So whatever you are doing, sit back, relax, and let me begin ASMR Mouth Sound Special Edition. Wait, what? Okay, uh, sorry, wrong script. More horror, that's that's the one. That's the one. More tales of uh, murder, straight up. Let's give it a go. Bristol is in the southwest of England. It's famous for its port, I mean, well, 300 years ago. Uh, today, though, I mean, I guess it's still famous for its port because I'm, I'm bringing it up. But, I mean, you're not going to be setting sail from Bristol Port today like your man in Treasure Island. I mean, I've met a few people from Bristol, actually. I'm all pretty cool. Gert Lush. That's the only Bristolism I know. They kept saying Gert Lush, and I have no fucking idea what they were talking about. But Gert Lush, everyone. Gert Lush. It was in the middle of February 2015 that it must have seemed like the entirety of Bristol, a city of half a million, was looking. Searching. Friends, neighbors, flyers, hashtags, you name it. If in Bristol, you saw it. You saw the name Becky Watts. It began in a house in the Crown Hill area of Bristol, East Bristol, on Thursday the 19th of February. But it would soon stretch across the great city and beyond. Becky Watts was 16 years old when what happened, happened. She was born on the 3rd of June, 1998. She was a carefree, happy person. Her parents split up when she was just three years old, and she went to live with her father, Darren, and his new partner, Angie. Now, Becky, she was very close with her dad. Angie, she already had a son of her own, Nathan Matthews, who was 12 years older than Becky. Becky, she wasn't always happy, though. I mean, who is? When she was 13, she was teased about her weight, which led to her developing anorexia and uh, dropping out of school for a time due to the bullying. Because kids can be bitches. However, you know, things seemed to be looking up as she grew into her teenage years, and she was excited about the future. At the time, when she was 16 in 2015, she was in a relationship with a fella named Luke Oberhansley. He was a year older and a, a trainee mechanic. He would be the last person she texted. On the 18th of February, a Wednesday, Becky, she'd gone to a little party at a local rugby club and then stayed that night at a friend's house playing games, watching flicks. Then, on the on the 19th, the morning of, she returned home. She was yapping away with her stepmother, Angie, for a bit, you know, until Angie, she had to leave the house going to a hospital appointment. This was at 11.15am. Then, when Angie returned to the house uh, a couple of hours later, Becky was gone. Now, it was odd from the start. Becky, who had struggled with bullying and had an eating disorder, she also struggled with social anxiety. Her father would say, uh, quote, 
She's very shy and timid. She can't even go up to the till in a shop she's so reserved. She couldn't ask for a bus ticket. She would rather walk than have to get on a bus and ask a driver for a ticket. You know, leaving the house alone was, was very difficult for her, no matter, no matter how much she wanted to leave. You know, for people struggling with social anxiety, it's, it can be just too hard. Anxiety, it's a very sinister illness, uh, one that's really not talked about enough. You know, most of the time you get the, ah, oh, come on, you're fine, reaction to it. Because it's not seen as, as being as severe as depression when, they really, when it really is, and they go hand in hand. And not only that, Becky had become terrified of being abducted. You know, she, she had watched many horror movies that had scarred her, leaving her paranoid that something could happen. Anyways, you know, social anxiety was the health issue Becky had, so her, her leaving the house by herself, just a teensy bit odd. Especially as she had just been out the night, the night before. It was the next day, after no one had seen her, that she was reported missing. And the Avon and Somerset police took on the case. Now, her phone, laptop and tablet were missing from the home, but no clothing or money that was gone, so that was odd, you know, didn't exactly seem like the things she would take. And calls to her mobile phone, to her cell phone, went straight to voicemail. And she, she was tight with her friends, as teenagers tend to be. And so with no contact, you know, with them, that's a huge, a huge red flag. Like, that was exactly the red flag for her parents. That's when they started to become really worried. When her friends contacted them, saying, you know, we don't know where she is. So if, like, you fucking don't know where she is, nobody knows where she is. And it was very quickly apparent this was not a missing of one's own volition case. This was some scary shite. And the search was on. The Friday became a Monday, and now national, UK, you know, all of UK media was covering the disappearance of Becky Watts. This was everywhere. You know, there was a find Becky hashtag. Da Darren, her dad, he went on radio to get the word out. Bex, if you're uh, watching this, please come home. We love you so much. Man. I really think, sort anything out of the back, just come home. Searches were organised, you know, across Bristol. The family home was searched, a pond in nearby St. George's Park. You know, someone had to get the snorkel out. And the police began interviewing those closest to her, her family. So, get this, right? That's, a, that's at the point they, they learned something new. Now, remember how Becky's stepmother, Angie, said she left shortly after 11 and that was the last anyone saw of her? Not, not true. Uh, someone was telling Fibs. Sean, I heard the door go. So, I, she was assuming it was Becky going out. Yeah. So, I'm assuming it was Becky going out. Okay. No one saw her go, but no. just heard the door go. Yeah. And the assumption that Becky had left yeah. Becky wasn't alone in the house at the time. Her stepbrother, Nathan, and his partner, Shauna Hoare, hoo they also ended up in the house shortly after Angie left. Now, Nathan, he struggled with, um, well... <laughs> Jobs, jobs, you know, difficulty with just occupations. He suffered from fibromyalgia, which, you know, meant he was in a lot of, he was in pain a lot at a time. It can be, it's a very difficult illness to deal with. Uh, however, he did join the Territorial Army. Um, so he was patriotic, I'll give him that. Like, the Territorial Army is like the UK's version of National Guard. Now, Nathan, he'd been in a relationship with Shauna from when he was in his early 20s. And she was 14 years of age, which is, um, 
um, not okay. Not healthy. That's not a healthy relationship, but that's, I mean, fuck. That's a whole other kettle of fish. We'll get into that. But he liked younger girls, um, I guess. I mean, I, I've, I've only said two words about him, and I'm already like, fuck this dude. Anyways, he wouldn't work. He wouldn't, he wouldn't work on batteries. But he saw himself fighting for king and country, so to speak. Or he, uh, you know, or at least he wanted to be seen that way. The pair, Nathan and Shauna, they lived together. Shauna, she became a carer for Angie, who had multiple sclerosis. That's what her hospital appointment was for. And so they all, you know, became pretty close. And they were the last people to see her. Or rather, hear her. As they said, they were in the house, heard the door slam, and that was it. You know, they assumed, they assumed Becky had left, and evidently never to return. I think we got there about 11-ish. Um, the door was locked, so obviously we used the key from underneath the recycling bin. Got in. Um, heard music upstairs. Assumed Becky had been in then. Mm. Um, I went into the kitchen to get a cigarette. Went to go outside to have a cigarette. My daughter started whinging because she wanted to come up with me, so I took her down to the garden to help feed the rabbit while I had a cigarette. Um, probably was about 15, 20 minutes. Um, then we came back up. I went into the kitchen to get a drink, I think I was, and wash my hands. Mm -hmm. Then I heard the front door slam. Um, carried on washing my hands, went into the living room. And then I think it wasn't until a lot later on that Angie asked me if Becky had gone out. And I said, yeah, I heard the door go. She must have gone out earlier. Really kind of like, oh, what was that? It was just, it was just the door, so Becky would have gone out. Yeah. <laughs> now, Shauna and Nathan, they raised, they, they raised eyebrows as they were initially dodging uh, interviews left, right and centre. Like, float like a butterfly kind of thing. But when it was a bit like, here, come on now, lads. This was brought up when Shauna was interviewed a second time. It's just a minor thing, really. Because I think some of our colleagues were trying to speak to Nathan. Just, I think, part of those initial inquiries just a few days ago on, on Tuesday, I think it was. Um, and they sort of perceived a bit of reluctance. So, yeah. <laughs> Do you have any knowledge of that? Not to my knowledge, I wouldn't know, no. No. Has, he, has Nathan had any? Sort of concerns about speaking to us. Not that he's told me now. No. If he does, I wouldn't know that. <laughs> yeah. How is he finding it? Um, he's found it quite hard, actually. Again, he's kind of more thinking, my God, if it would. Yeah. Yeah. Or again, knowing how hard it'd be for his mum at the moment. You know, because Becky was almost like her daughter, daughter to her. Yeah. During those interviews, Nathan w would mention he wasn't a huge fan of Becky. He, he thought her, you know, self-centered, manipulative, and he didn't like the way she treated his mother, Angie, or her father, Darren. He thought she was not, you know, um, a nice person. Hey, listen, I'm not afraid to say it. You are so not girtlish in the slightest. Now, their stories were straight. Shauna and Nathan's stories were straight. Straight as an arrow. But like, I mean, kind of like too straight. Like, it seemed odd how well their stories fit together. Like, I mean, you could think yourself, you know, if you could think through what you did at some arbitrary, you know, time yesterday or the day before, you're not gonna be able to tell it immediately what happened. You're gonna get stories wrong. Oh, did I do this or did I do that? Like, no, I, well, maybe it's just me. My memory is shite. 
but their stories were like rehearsed, you know what I mean? But at that stage, other than the than Spidey Sense, you know, Spidey Sense Tingling being raised, they were swiftly moved on from. Swiftly on back to searching the home, she slammed a door in and ran off from. Allegedly. And during the search, they found blood on the door frame of Becky's room. And in the blood, they found a fingerprint. While the folk of Bristol kept looking, it's been over a week since Becky disappeared, the labs were doing lab work. And the fingerprint fingered Nathan. What was he doing with his paws in blood in Becky's room? Blood that was also revealed to be Becky's, which led to the police arresting Nathan and Shauna. At this point, they were arrested for kidnapping. Nathan and Shauna were, once again, interviewed by the police. You were at the address at the time that Rebecca or Becky, I think most people know. Becky, yeah. As, yeah, Becky. Or Bex. Yeah, okay. Do you know her as Becky or Bex? Uh, usually call her Bex. Is she safe? Well, I don't know where she is, so I'm not meant to know. Is there anything that happened that could be significant in the disappearance of Rebecca? No. Are you absolutely sure? Yes. I know you've got something to tell us. Mm. I can see it in your face. I was just making sure there was nothing, like a weird significant thing that I hadn't thought of. Um, I don't know. It was very apparent Shauna was not prepared for this. Like, she was lying like a rug and not very convincingly. And so the police, they leapt on that like they do, a, a, like a lion does a limping gazelle. And they kind of tore her to shreds. While Nathan, he was a bit more of a uh, bullshit artist about the whole thing. It was at this point the police decided to search the home of Nathan and Shauna. And it was, it was what I like to call a friggin' pig sty. Like... S-H-I-T-H-O-L-E shithole does not do it justice. It's hard to believe one couple can have this much shit. They were hoarders. Complete and total hoarders. Which would make, you know, the uh, investigation into them a lot harder because of all this crap. During the search of the home, though, one thing struck them. And it struck the police, um, because of how clean it was. Like, it was the, it was the one thing that was clean in such stark contrast to the rest of the dump they called their home. The bath. The bath had been scrubbed clean. In the house, they found receipts from a homeware store. It was dated the 20th of February, the day Becky was reported missing, and purchased was a circular saw, gloves, goggles, and a face mask. Tracking those purchases down, CCTV showed it was, whoa, unbelievably, Nathan. And he certainly wasn't doing any home remodeling. Don't think he'd ever touched anything in this home unless it was to shovel more shit. Nathan and Shauna were then both arrested on suspicion of murder. They admitted their guilt. Yeah, kind of. This interview is being um, recorded at uh, Patchway Police Station in Bristol. It is now Tuesday the 3rd of March 2015 and it's exactly 12 midday. He admitted, well, said, but it's not an admission, it's a lie. That he, that he had kidnapped Becky. And the reason he had kidnapped Becky was, Ooh, guys, you know, I, I, it was totally innocent. I just wanted to teach her a lesson. Because I didn't like the way she treated my mother and her dad. So I was going to just scare her. Because I know she's scared of being kidnapped. But, um, ooh, you know, things kind of went wrong. And he strangled her. But it was an accident. So, you know, um, it's kind of her fault, really. 
How about if we start with this idea you had about scaring Becky? Uh, I don't know if it was on TV or something like that, but obviously I had a couple of dreams. I was obviously once I got her in the car. I was thinking of like a wooded area or whatever to obviously take her back out. So obviously still have the mask on. Scare her and, you know, say some long lines of, you know, you've got to start treating people. Um, start treating people better, you know, not being a bitch or self-centered, and then like make a threat of, um, you know, or you know, or this could happen again or worse or something like that. Obviously, walk away after, but I obviously, but then if she try and follow. But ultimately, the body of Becky was discovered. Finally, what happened? Uh, well, this is what happened because Nathan, <sighs> he's some bollocks. Sean too. They had some disturbing sexual shit going on. I mean, probably a dead giveaway by how shitty their house was and the fact that he started dating Shauna when she was a child. And they were obsessed with teenagers. Again, no surprise. They would text each other all the time about kidnapping them and fantasizing about, well, disturbing, disturbing shit. And eventually, it's like we see, you know, escalation, the fantasies soon, they are just not enough. You gotta go at it, you know, real, hardcore. And I hate that I just said that. So the first message is uh, 9th of 12th, 2014, uh, timed at 12.48. And it says to Shauna, and um, it says, Fuck you, bring me back to pretty schoolgirls then. D1, I think that says. Tell me about that text message. No comment. Next message is 9th of December, 2014, at 18.14. It says from Shauna. Just went to cost cutters and saw a very big cat's pretty petite girl. Almost knocked her out to bring her home. L-O-L. And there's crosses and zeros. Shauna, what can you tell me about that? No comment. Am I right in thinking that this girl was similar to Becca's age? No comment. That day, when Angie last saw her as she left to her hospital appointment, Nathan arrived at the house with a kidnap kit which included stun guns and handcuffs. He knew Angie had a hospital appointment that day as Shauna was her care, and he knew Darren would be out at work, so he knew Becky was alone. He went to her bedroom, where she was you know, sleeping off the night before, where he suffocated her, and he stabbed her 15 times. Her body was then moved to the trunk of Nathan's car, and him and Shauna, they hung out in the house as the rest of the family came and went all the while, her body was just out in front of the house in the trunk of his car. And eventually, they took her body back to their house. The next day, in the bathroom, they dismembered her, packed the remains in plastic and in salts, and hid them in a garden shed, a neighbor's shed. I guess they figured that the police would search their own shed during the investigation of what happened to Becky, and they could hide it in somebody else's shed. The hiding didn't last long. Nathan and Shauna's relationship was, uh, messed up? Hard to leave, I know, wow, what a surprise, whoa. You know, shock her. Nathan, he was violent towards Shauna, choking her. He dominated her. Though, that's what he would say, those closer to Nathan would say the same about her, that Nathan's mental health, which was always on a bit of a knife's edge, deteriorated during his relationship with her. But at the end of the day, he was, you know, in his 20s, she was like 14 years old. He should know better. Fuck this guy. But what kept them together was a bond they had. That was what they had in common because she was still playing with Barbies while he was probably I don't know, going into the pub. 
But that's what it was the bond over sick shit was what kept them together and led to this. Now, Nathan denied Shauna had anything to do with it. And Shauna denied she had anything to do with it. She's like, whoops, uh, I'm out of here. I'm 85,000. She denied any knowledge of what happened. Just so I'm clear, as far as the kidnap's concerned, you are not aware that Nathan was planning to do that on no. that day. Okay. How do I know that you weren't involved? Again, I shouldn't have any DNA reason to be involved in, again, especially with my past, to think that I could allow harm to come to somebody else like that is highly unlikely. And again, the fact that as far as I knew, he was you know, changing, he wasn't as violent anymore. Well, I suppose the thing is, from someone outside looking in, is that what he's saying is he's gone to the address with his intent to kidnap her. Okay. And it's been quite convenient that you're at the garden having yes. a cigarette and he's doing what he's doing. Yes. Do you see what I mean? Yes. And someone might say, well, hold on a minute, she should have to know. Yeah. There's no way he could do that or take those items, take some stuff with him and the intent to go there yeah. without you knowing. I mean, I'm, that's, yeah. I'm just trying to um, make, you know... Again, the car, I didn't see anything in the car. So again, I'm not sure if he's just kind of lost his marbles or if he's just deeply disturbed without anybody knowing. Mm. Yeah, okay. The trial began in October 2015. Nathan, he pled guilty to manslaughter, not murder, continuing his line of it was just a plot to scare her. God, just trying to scare her, not harm her. It just sort of happened. As you do. Even if that story was true, like the fake kidnapping, and it is not, he should still go to prison for being a fucking psycho to do that, to, to kidnap somebody in a plot to scare them. Shauna, she denied everything, said she had nothing to do with it, even after her DNA was found on the bags that contained Becky's remains. When asked about the text messages, you know, they would send to each other in the months previous, about fantasizing about kidnapping a teenager, you know, all these texts that can be covered under what's wrong with you, itis, she just said, oh yeah, when I was texting about fantasizing and plotting to kidnap a teenager, teenager, I was just joking. Obviously, I was just being sarcastic, you know? Yeah, of course, I'd love to kidnap and torture a young girl for my sexual pleasure. I said sarcastically, of course, you know, in Minecraft. Yeah, don't we all send those kind of texts? Yeah, grand, no bother. Her line was as believable as that sentence was actually sarcastic. And after a five-week trial and three and a half hours of jury deliberation, bullshit was called on all of their stories. Nathan, he was found guilty of murder, Shauna, manslaughter, and both of conspiracy to kidnap, perverting the course of justice, preventing the lawful burial of a body and possession of two stun guns, which they didn't have a license to own. Nathan was sentenced to life with a minimum of 33 years. Shauna, to 17 years. And that's the end of that story, story number one. A tragic story for, for Becky. You can't help just, like, your heart bleeds for, for poor Becky. Nathan and Shauna, pure monsters. Both, you know, have appealed time many times. Both have been denied, so happy days on that front. Nathan, he's what I like to call a real piece of shit. And Shauna, who used the old, yeah, when I messaged my psychotic boyfriend about doing things to a teenage girl and then he actually did them, I was joking. Jeez. Well, you know, it's a real shame she's in prison. I said sarcastically, of course. And now here we have another story of betrayal regarding a teenager 
And this one takes us all the way from Bristol to New Jersey, New Jersey. And it's a story, the tragic story of Sarah Stern. The people who betrayed her were not family, though, I mean, they may as well have been. They were as close as they, they were brothers to a woman who didn't have any literal brothers. And the motive for this one was not sexual. It was financial, but it was equally as ruthless and depraved. Sarah Stern was born in 1997, and she grew up in Neptune City, New Jersey. Neptune City, near the world-famous Asbury Park. She graduated from Neptune High School, where she played softball and was on the swim team. And growing up, she was friends with Liam McIntasney and Preston Taylor. Best mates since they were young'uns, all, all going to the same high school. As I said, Sarah, she was an only child. And Liam and Preston, they were brothers to her. They did everything together. You know, Preston and Sarah, they even went to, they even attended prom together in high school. They were like the three best friends that anyone could have. Like there was no romanticness between the three of them. They just, they were just best friends. Now, late in 2016, um, after, you know, graduating and stuff, she was actually planning on moving to Canada with Liam. Liam even had Sarah under the family section of his Facebook profile. You know, they were friends who just wanted to get out and explore life together, and they made plans to go out and do it. Um, and so if you're going to move to a new country, hey, do it with one of your best friends. And Sarah, she she was like a, a travel bug. She always talked about moving places. Now, she never actually did, but she always talked about it. Many of her friends didn't necessarily believe she was actually going to go to Canada uh, with Liam, but it seemed to be a dream of hers. She, like, if you look at pictures of her, she always, nearly always seems to be wearing a hat or a t-shirt with like a Blue Jays logo on it, a Maple Leaf logo, all that sort of stuff. And all of the pictures, she also seems like such a happy, content person. You know, she was someone who loved YouTube, she loved drawing, she loved being creative, happy-go-lucky, and she would talk to anyone. That. 19-year-old Sarah Stern disappeared from Neptune City on December 3rd, 2016. Her car was found in the early morning hours of that day, the key still in the ignition. But no Sarah. Now it was odd from the get-go. The car was found by an Uber driver parked on a bridge that went over the Shark River. Like, like right there on the bridge on Route 35. 911, where is the emergency? Uh, yeah, not emergency. Um, actually, on the Belmar Bridge, right after heading south in the middle of the bridge, there's a car that's abandoned. It's off to the side of the road. But the, the Belmar Bridge being the 35 bridge? Uh, yeah, the 35 bridge would be going over the going from north, going south. Into Belmar. Into Belmar, yeah. Right. Hey, did you pass the midpoint? Because uh, up to the midpoint is Neptune, and after the midpoint is Belmar. Um, so, yeah, Neptune, actually. Technically, it was after, it looked like it was more on the Neptune side. So what kind of car is it? Uh, it kind of looks like an old, beat-up, light tan-colored, like, sedan. And, uh, what was your name, sir? Um, I, it, so if it's okay, I'd just rather be anonymous. Yeah, I'm driving Uber and Lyft tonight, so I just figured I'd give a call in, because it's kind of hard to see, I think, if you're coming the other way. And, uh, was there anybody inside the vehicle? I looked, no. The police, when they, when the, you know, the driver, the Uber driver reported a car being parked on a bridge, uh, he reported to the police, the police went, went over, and they were able to trace the car back to Sarah's grandmother who owned it. And then they learned that Sarah often drove the car. They went to Sarah's house. There was no sign of her. A massive search began. Okay, now, her car found on a bridge in that area. It was thought maybe, maybe she jumped. That was what seemed most likely. She'd parked on the bridge in the middle of the night and went, you know, jumped straight over. 
The car, it hadn't been broken into, there were no signs of a struggle or anything like that. Divers, they went into the drink. They had a goo. They found not a thing. Now, the Shark River that runs below Belmar Bridge was where her car where her car was found. Uh, it, the, the river is a very fast-flowing one, so they thought if she somehow entered the water, it, it'd be very unlikely she would still be there. She could be far into the Atlantic by now. But searching, well, practically everywhere, the authorities, they had no clues as to what happened to Sarah. You know, please went out, but remained unanswered. Sarah's father, he told the police he'd been trying to contact her for a while, you know, to no response. Uh, now, now her father, Michael, he was down in Florida at the time, but he swiftly came back. When Sarah disappeared, she was home alone. She was an only child. Her dad was down in Florida and Sarah's mother had sadly passed away a couple of years before. Liam and Preston, her best friends, they were oh so, oh so concerned about what could have happened to Sarah after she went missing. You know, volunteering in the searches for her, everything, you know, you, you think you'd do. And Liam, he initially supported the suicide idea, telling the police at the time, I just know she's been trying to get away, been telling me she's moving to Canada, although she was supposed to move there with him. And on her Twitter account, she made multiple references about moving to Canada and how much she loved Toronto. But he also told the police she had attempted to take her life once before. Her mother had died from cancer a few years earlier, and she'd been arguing with her father a lot. They did not get on terribly well um, recently, in, in recent days anyway. I know that her dad's taken money from her in the past. Uh, I think her mom was supposed to leave her money or something. I know she definitely has a lot of trust issues with her dad, so I've just been trying to help her out with that. I've, I've been friends with her since first grade, so we have a pretty good friendship. In the past, she has had a tendency to have self-destructive suicidal behavior. If there's any way that she contacts you in any way that you two may make contact, if you think about something that you guys talked about that might be important that you're not thinking about and you're telling us now, you got to call us and let us know. But like, when the police are talking to him, it's like, which, uh, which one is it? Did she move away to start a new life, just randomly leaving her car on a bridge? Or did she jump? Oh, no, it's one. Oh, no, I, I, shit, I mean, no, it's the other. Oh, uh, no, sorry, I mean, the last time Sarah was seen alive was with Liam on the 2nd of December. The pair, they reportedly ran errands together, they went for Taco Bell, and then, you know, her car was found in the early hours of December to Turt. She's always wanted to go to Canada. One thing I, I want to talk to you guys about was, um, if she, she did jump off the bridge, what are the odds that she's not somewhere all the way out in the ocean? But... And did she tell you she was going to jump off the bridge? No. And now, let's meet Anthony Curry, a good friend of Liam's. They had attended high school together. He also was another Neptune High alumni. They bonded over movies, both being huge film buffs. And just a few weeks before Sarah disappeared, Liam told Anthony Curry a story. He said that he had an idea to kill this girl, a girl, and he would strangle her and throw her off a bridge. Hmm. But of course, you know, they talked about movies all the time. Maybe, maybe he was gonna, he was gonna write one of them screenplays I always hear so much about. So Anthony heard this story, maybe thought it was, you know, he's been watching too many movies or wanted to get into the film business or whatever. He didn't think much more of it. Even when Sarah disappeared from a bridge. 
but not long after, Liam started contacting him over Snapchat, asking Anthony if the police had contacted him or not. Now they hadn't, but he started to become curious, let's say. Towards the end of January, Anthony went to the police and told them about the idea, the story Liam had had. The police then set Anthony up with a recording device to see what else, what other good ideas that does Liam have. You can't blame me for doing this, right? I gotta see you up for one sec, alright? No disrespect, I'm sure. No disrespect, okay? Yeah, I got the FBI on my hands, too. What, what are they questioning? Oh, yeah, a lot. For what? The worst part of it is, I thought I was marking out 50 grand, 100 grand in my pocket. She had one safe, and she took money out, and she only had. 10 grand. And this money, I don't know if it was brick or something. Old money, terrible quality. I don't even know if I could put any of it in the bank. She got a lot of money, and I didn't, I didn't even get a quarter of it. On February 1st, 2017, almost two months since Sarah went missing, since Sarah disappeared, the case took another sudden turn. Preston Taylor confessed to the police. Taking her out and then back somewhere to dispose of the body. Okay, when you say taking her out, what do you mean? Staying on And Lee McIntosney was arrested. Preston told them that on the night of December 2nd, 2016, he helped his friend Liam throw Sarah's body off the bridge and into the dark Shark River below. And the worst part is, we threw her off the bridge and the body never showed up. It's probably frozen. It's probably horrible we have in the ocean. See, what happened was this. Earlier that day, Liam went to Sarah's house when she was home alone and strangled her to death over the course of 30 minutes. That's how long it took her to die, before stealing around $7,000 from her. I'm hanging out with her. She was, we, we went to the bank, she took some money, not all of her money. We're counting it out, and then she goes to walk out the front door. I took her out, drag her, my biggest problem was the dog, and her dog laid there and watched as I killed her. Didn't do anything. Oh, what kind of dog? Yeah, what kind of dog is that? It's like something was in a big dog. It looks like a beagle, but it's like the size of a great Dane. She like screaming? Or you had her so tight that it was like... I pretty much hung her, like, I just, I picked her up. And have her just like dangling off the ground, and she just pissed herself. And said my name, and then that was it. And it took me a half an hour to kill her. I thought I was going to be able to choke her out and have her out in like a couple inches. I choked her out, and then she was just laying there having a seizure or something. So then I just, I had to, I got a shirt, and I just shut it down her throat so she wouldn't throw up or anything, and held my finger over her nose, and set a timer. I have to leave. I dropped my phone at Sarah's house. My phone was at Sarah's house. Like, when you left your phone? Yeah, I lost it. I couldn't find it. I had to go to work. I had timed everything out. What were you doing? Strangling someone. 
I couldn't find it, dude. The motive for someone who had been Sarah's best friend since she was six years old to horrifically murder her over an extended period of time. I don't think there's any fucking motive good enough, but this was what it was. When Sarah's mother died a couple of years before, didn't she just happen to leave her, her, her kid some money? However, Liam thought it was around $100,000, not $7,000, which was all he got. Betty was pissed. I had a lot of money. And I didn't... I didn't even get a quarter of it. I don't feel any different. I don't think about it. You always think you're gonna try these new things. You're gonna change. It doesn't change. It just doesn't do anything. After, he called Preston, uh, begging him to, to come over to help him find his phone, which he had left somewhere in Sarah's house. And he asked Preston to help him get rid of Sarah's body. Preston went over and helped Liam hide Sarah under a bush near her home till it, till it got dark outside. Then they returned eight hours later, placed her body in the passenger seat of her own car, and Liam drove to the Belmar Bridge, Preston following in his own vehicle. The two lads then threw her body into the water and left her car there. See, Liam had been studying Sarah's movements for months before he killed her, especially how she drove to and from her own home, I watched her every time she backed out, she does the same thing. So I backed out exactly like she did. She off. Like she would do this particular turn in and out of her own driveway so that when the neighbors CCTV picked them up with Sarah's dead body in the passenger seat, you know, driving her car from her home, on camera it would look just like Sarah was driving the car. Liam later denied he was talking about Sarah's murder in the video confession, claiming he believed he was just auditioning for a movie. Give this man a, you know, give this man an Oscar. Like, oh, I didn't even know the camera was there, but I secretly did know the camera was there. And I thought, you know, um, it was just one of them movies. Hollywood came knock, knock, knocking on my door, guys, you know. So I thought I would just tell a story that's very similar to what actually happened. Prosecutors argued that Liam had been planning on robbing Sarah for months before the incident occurred. And he'd actually let Preston in on his little scheme. Preston pleaded guilty to first-degree robbery, second-degree conspiracy to commit robbery, and second-degree disturbing or desecrating human remains, and agreed to testify against Liam at trial in April 2017. Preston actually agreed to go back to Sarah's house and show the authorities you know, exactly what happened. Sarah was slumped in this corner right here. He also told them the location of two buried safe boxes, one in Sandy Hook containing about well, the money that was stolen, $7,000, and another in Shark River Park, containing Sarah's clothing. Preston Taylor was sentenced to 18 years in prison. Liam maintained his not guilty plea and went on trial in January 2019. Liam had planned the murder for six months after he first heard about the money Sarah had. At the start, they only planned on robbing her, but then they decided, hey, you know, let's just kill her. It's the easiest way to get, to get her De Niro's. At one point, the trial nearly went to shit after a juror posted on Facebook, sitting on the jury, El Mayo. Liam's lawyer insisted a mistrial be declared after, but the judge tripped that request, and proceedings continued. In Liam's defense, the lawyer questioned whether Sarah was even dead. After all, nobody was found, or has ever been found. The defense even called witnesses who said they saw Sarah, you know, hours after she had been killed, according to the prosecution. 
Among them was a witness who testified that he saw Sarah walking down the street at 5 a.m. on December 3rd, which would have been, you know, after, after the time prosecutors say she was killed. This witness later added that after that, after 5 a.m., he saw a disabled car on the bridge down the road. However, investigators said the car in question, which was Sarah's car, it had been towed from the bridge before that time. Like, it had already been found by that point. So if he's saying, oh, I saw the car on the bridge at 7 a.m., we have proof the car was towed from the bridge way before that. So testimony kind of went whoops out the window. Liam was found guilty on all seven counts against him, which included first-degree murder, conspiracy, desecrating human remains, tampering with evidence, and more in February 2019. Sentencing in the matter of State of New Jersey versus Liam McAtasney. Mr. McAtasney is now 21 years old. Uh, again, uh, he lived in Neptune City. Everyone essentially in all the... Almost all of the family members that testified came from this small community of Neptune City. They all knew each other. Um, that's what makes this really, uh, really a heinous event, that these were two people, meaning Sarah and Liam, that knew each other since, I believe, grammar school. So on count one, murder in the first degree, it's life imprisonment without the possibility of parole. Count two is robbery in the first degree. This sentence will run concurrently, meaning at the same time it's 20 years New Jersey State Prison, and count five, desecrating human remains as second degrees. That's 10 years consecutive. In June 2019, Liam McTasney was sentenced to life in prison without the possibility of parole. An appeal in 2023 by Liam was denied. And Sarah's body has never been found, having been washed out into the ocean. Just pretty, pretty rough, you know, after all that, just for a couple of thousand books, you know, you can murder one of your oldest friends for just that when they were only 19 years old. It's, it's scary shit, though. It doesn't really get much stupider than happily recounting the story of you murdering someone to your friend who had absolutely no involvement and recounting it with like great relish. What an audition. I don't feel any different. I don't think about it. Great audition for being a huge piece of shit. Exactly like Nathan and Shauna, portraying those closest to you. Thank you so much for listening. I hope you enjoyed this old podcast or, you know, found it interesting. Um, again, it really, you listening means the world to me. If I could ask you anything, it's just to rate and review the podcast. It helps out more than anything else. Uh, well, you know, you listening actually helps out more than anything else. But rating and reviewing would be like the second thing. So really, uh, really thank you so much. Um, and yeah, and I will talk to you or see you real soon in the next old one. But until then, please take care of each other and yourselves because I love you. Mike out.